Welcome to Book Rising, a podcast by the Radical Books Collective. Hello and welcome to Book Rising and special to our Radical Publishing Futures series. We are hosting conversations on diversity in publishing or perhaps the lack of diversity in the publishing industry and speaking to experts to understand structural racism, editorial processes, taste making, culture making, equity and other challenges in this industry. In October 2022, PEN America published a scathing report titled Reading Between the Lines, Race, Equity, and Book Publishing. The comprehensive study found deep and persistent obstacles to bringing more titles by authors of color to commercial success. Uh, this is an exact quote from the, from the study. They found that 95% of books published in the United States from 1950 to 2018 were written by white authors. Employees as well as senior level positions in publishing also remain disproportionately white. Today, I have two incredibly talented and committed editors uh, who are part of the small group of people working to disrupt publishing in the US today. Elizabeth Mendez Berry is vice president and executive editor of One World, an imprint of Random House in New York. Portia Burke has revolutionized publishing in her 15 years at Random House. She has worked with authors such as Maya Angelou, Reverend Amy Butler, and has led the publication of new editions of the Black Book that were originally edited by Toni Morrison. Welcome, Elizabeth and Portia. Really looking forward to talking to you. Thank you so much. Thank Great. you so much. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, could you both say, I could uh, just on a personal note, how you both, both got involved in publishing, just what led you, uh, led you there? Um, I've been in book publishing since 2004. What led me there was the need to have a job where I felt purpose to do the work. I'd been working in the music business. And while I was very interested in that culture and I grew up in, in particular hip hop culture, I knew that I wasn't serving in the way that I could. And I thought about, you know, as a grammar nerd who came from Queens, New York and grew up in the eighties with rappers as storytellers that my way of serving could be in book publishing to help serve authors and people who have something important to say, help mm -hmm. connect them with the people who really needed their message. Um, and I've been really fortunate enough, blessed enough to continue that work in a variety of ways over the past 19 years now, mm -hmm. um, whether that is directly as an editor, so advocating for authors as, you know, their coach on the page, uh, or whether that is serving the other gatekeepers and executives as their assistant or having, you know, spearheading diversity initiatives for Random House, just using my position to help influence the choices that folks are making in ways that they serve um, audiences who look like me and come from where I come from. Thanks so much, Portia. That's so important. <laughs> Elizabeth, do you want to say a little? Sure. Um, so I kind of got into publishing by accident. Um, I had been a critic, a journalist, a reporter, an editor in magazine land years ago when magazines were 
a little bit healthier and more robust. Um, and then I wound up working in the nonprofit sector in philanthropy to sustain my expensive journalism habit. And um, eventually, Chris Jackson, who is the editor-in-chief of One World Books, reached out to me several years ago and, and said, you ever been interested in working in publishing? And I really had never thought about it, to be honest. Wow. Um, and I think I, you know, I love books, but I'm not a literary person. I'm not, it wasn't my universe. But I had come to the conclusion through a lot of the work that I'd been doing, both as a, as a, some, you know, as an editor, as a mentor, all as a, as a funder, that to shift what's possible in this country, you actually have to change the stories we tell. And changing the stories we tell, one of the kind of most fundamental places to do that is in book publishing and short stories and novels. Um, and it was a place where in the world that I was in, in, in philanthropy, there really were not people investing in books or understanding books as being super important to this broader ecosystem of storytelling. And so as I started to think about it, and really I looked at One World's impact through books like Just Mercy by Brian Stevenson mm -hmm. and thinking about how that book really transformed for many people, how they think about criminal justice issues and gave them a level of proximity and discomfort with that proximity that wound up being really productive, I think, in terms of the discussions that it provoked. I thought, hmm, this is interesting. And so Chris actually wound up, we talked about it for several years. It was a long, it was a long engagement, as they say. And then uh, I wound up landing at One World three years ago, just before the pandemic. And I have to say that I'm so glad to be on this on this podcast with both of you. But Portia has been such an important figure for me in terms of acclimating me to a completely new world. You know, I, I like to say I'm gray, but I'm green. You know, I started in a role where the majority of the people who are at the same level within uh, within the company have been in the business for two decades. You know, mm -hmm. and I had have been in the business now for three years. So it's a very different um, level of experience uh, and it's very disorienting. And it's also when we talk about some of the issues I think we'll cover today, if you're interested in destabilizing some of the problematic dynamics within the publishing industry, you do have to look outside of it. Um, but to do that requires people who are willing, people like Portia, who are willing to ask, answer a million questions to be so supportive and so generous um, and so present with us. So I'm beyond grateful to Portia for making it possible for me. There's, you know, there's other folks, but Portia has been like a fairy godmother, not just to me, but to many of us who have started in this industry uh, at, a, at a more advanced career stage. So yeah. thank you. <laughs> that's, that's great. If uh, that's, I mean, that's really lovely to hear and, you know, and it kind of highlights, of course, the intensity of the challenges around mentorship and senior level kind of uh, solidarity uh, in wanting to have a world in which these new stories are told. Portia, you also mentioned growing up in a hip hop culture, uh, which is certainly not our, it, it's not something I imagine is like uh, embraced by sort of mainstream <laughs> publishing um, as well. So, you know, just to start, uh, Portia, with you first, and then Elizabeth, what were some of the explicit race and gender, you're both women as well, gender challenges uh, that you immediately encountered 
uh, when you entered this profession? Um, I can't, I have to say thank you to Elizabeth um, for that kindness and to be able to say, you know, how much I cherish being able to serve executives in my company and serve senior people in my company as one of them, right? And as one of you, um, I'm so used to, and so to answer your question about like what it was like to encounter a very non-diverse space as soon as I got there. Well, I was the assistant to the president of the company, right? So my way of serving was very much, I will answer your phones, I will schedule your meetings, I will cater your meetings, whatever that is. And was I aware that as a Black woman, I was serving a mostly white environment in a very, uh, what's the best way to say that, in a very familiar cultural mm. dynamic? Yeah, I could say that. But I was also so grateful to be in the space and be around other book nerds and having gone to school at predominantly white institutions, like I was prepared for this, right? And the world told me, this is kind of as good as it gets. And, you know, for all the other things that come with the access to storytellers like Dr. Angelo or um, John Meacham, that was worth it to me. Um, I was excited, however, because there was only one Black editor at the time uh, mm -hmm. who was running the original One World, and she was the One World staff, right? That was it. So what did it look like? I would do anything that I could. Like if everybody's going to ask me to schedule a meeting for them, I will walk to her to be like, can I do something for you? Right. If, again, sitting in the president's office, I have the opportunity to tell our publisher, Gina Sanchello, like, hey, Gina, Melody Guy, who was the senior editor at One More when I started, Melody is going to come into your office to talk to you about this acquisition. I really love it. Or do that kind of talking and excitement of things that helps editors, you know, mm -hmm. get the green light to acquire their projects. That's what I was there for, you know, and that was well before I had the opportunity to acquire my own content. It was always, and it's always been, and I hope will always be my role at Random House, not just to serve the books I want to bring into the world myself, but to support my colleagues who I know have the wisdom that exceeds what I could possibly do on the page, the connections that surpass any connections that I have, especially now, having been in this industry so long, there are so many new voices, new opportunities, new mindsets that geniuses like Elizabeth, like Chris, like Kieran Mayo, Nicole Counts, what they can bring into the world. How can I help create the most supportive environment for their books to be successful. Um, and that's that's what I'm doing here. I hope I answered that question. Can yeah. I just jump in and add something? Um, I think that there are, I mean, you know, and Portia jump in and, 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 and correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's an aspect of the publishing world that is very competitive. I mean, literally our job is to outbid or outmaneuver other editors in order to acquire a particular book. And that's that's challenging, right? Like you come into an atmosphere where competition is completely normalized and it's part of your day-to-day. -day. And at the same time, you have someone like Portia who is mission-driven and is thinking in this holistic way about how to facilitate the success of all of these different voices in, in the ways that she just described, right? Like she understands that articulating enthusiasm for a book that perhaps the higher ups would never 
be interested in or see a market for or understand as being important, her doing that is just like a little toehold for that editor to access potentially resources, visibility, whatever the case may be. So I just want to note that that is unusual, I think. And I think some of us, people like myself, my orientation is is 100% mission driven. Um, that's why I'm here. That's what I'm, you know, that's what I'm here to do. And so I don't approach competition in the same way as I think some of my colleagues do, because I don't, I'm not looking to take the book from you. I'm really looking to find the alignment between myself and an author where it's right. And if it's not right and I don't get it, then that's as it should be, right? Because I, I don't, I'm, it's, to me, that's just the, the, that's the way I see it, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but it's, but it's, I think it's, it's worth noting because I think it's part of a, an ethos that is transformational in really subtle but important ways. Yeah. No, no, absolutely. Um, especially because we forget that the publishing industry is also profit and money driven. And there is a whole kind of challenge around money uh, and, uh, you know, uh, who sells and who doesn't sell. And you talked about outbidding. Um, Elizabeth, did you want to comment on the on the race and gender challenges uh, part of the question? Sure. I mean, I think um, I had been the last job I had I mean, I've, I've been, I think, really lucky in my career in so many different ways. I had early um, professional experiences, like being at Vibe magazine in the early 2000s was so form- formative for me because it was a space where, you know, the leadership was predominantly Black, but not exclusively Black. There were, you know, there were Asian folks there, there were Latinx people, Afro-Latinx, there was like a whole range of different identities at the table. And so it was like never feeling as if, and basically what I always say is that I never, I was taught that excellence is not something that white institutions have a monopoly on, right? I I was, I really believed that, um, that, you know, this kind of kinetic diversity was so exciting and and really propelled us towards wonderful work, right? So that's where I started. And then working in philanthropy, I was really fortunate as well to work with very, you know, just exquisitely diverse teams. And so when I landed at Penguin Random House on my first day in February, 2020, and I walked into the, you know, the building, it was a sea of cubicles. First of all, all the cubicles are just like the same, which was so interesting because I was like, this is an artist space. Like these are people working with artists, right? And, but the space, spatially, it's very, it feels like kind of conformist. And also the vast majority of people that I uh, encountered were white women. So that's an interesting thing, right? But like the gender, the the vast majority of uh, the people in publishing that I had um, come across were white women. And the very, very few Latinx people that I came across were uh, men in the mailroom. And mm-hmm. so those th- those things hit me pretty hard. Um, I hadn't been in spaces like that. I hadn't been in a space like that in a really long time. And I really, it did really strike me. Um, and I think sharpened my awareness and intentionality around this role, you know? Um, Latinx people are drastically underrepresented in publishing. Like, yeah. It's it it's it hurts me to think about. Like it's just awful. 
And the implications of that, I've thought a lot about what it means when communities don't have access to a particular type of prestige, like what it means when a community is not perceived as being important enough to, to think about in these very elevated cultural spaces. And, you know, I, I guess my, my feeling is we've probably been radicalized by this. I mean, I already, I was already on that path, but my sense of the power and importance of Latinx voices uh, has just been amplified. And I feel, and I also, my sense of responsibility, which is hard, you know, when you come into a role like this and you're just like, can I edit a book, you know, point A, <laughs> can I put it out into the world? Can it succeed? Can I, can I just do the basic things that I'm supposed to do? And then also feeling like you have your community on your shoulders and then also feeling acutely aware of how you're actually, I'm not representative of all Latin people. <laughs> like I'm, I'm just right. myself, but I do feel, um, I think, you know, I feel like a, a, I feel like I have to do the best that I can mm -hmm. to ensure that I am seen and to ensure that my community is seen. And as Portia knows, there's moments where that's really hard, definitely. But I also think that, you know, if they they didn't hire me to be silent, you know, and, and I've had incredible support from, my, you know, people like Portia and my colleague, uh, my colleagues within One World, who are just generally curious about the stories that we haven't told before, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, and I love the terms both of you used before, mission-driven, I think, and advocacy, all those kinds of things. And I understand the responsibility of wanting to <laughs> represent one group of people, the group you belong to, and so on. Uh, but I think, uh, you know, it's amazing. The work you both are doing is are amazing. Um, and I wanted to bring in this this Pen America report, uh, which outlined uh, just incredible barriers for writers of color with regards to getting their works published, getting their uh, work sustained over time, uh, writing more than one or two books, uh, and generally getting their voices heard. Um, and I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm wrong, but it seems that compared to other industries, TV or film or, you know, education, which is a sector that I'm primarily in, um, uh, you know, uh, compared to these industries, there seems to be very little understanding about how a book actually gets out into the world. Uh, I think when we hold the book in our hand, there isn't a sense of the journey or just the amount of people that it took to produce that little object. Uh, that could blow minds and change the world even. So I don't know, maybe Portia, you're the person to walk walk us through some of the challenges at the different stages uh, of wanting to get these uh, barriers removed for voices of color to be foregrounded. I'd love that. I love talking about this <laughs> stuff. <laughs> it's a part of yeah, why, why I'm here and why I've been here for the amount of time is I really do enjoy this. This is what mm -hmm. I am passionate about, not just the stories themselves, but the transformation from a Word document that we're all familiar with, or in the case of Styles P, uh, who wrote his novel Invincible on his two-way pager, right? Oh, Going from, oh yes, yes he did, um, which is even more of a triumph. Um, into a physical book, right? As people don't think about, oh, okay, something we are familiar with, a PDF, right? Being a stage where a book is laid out for the first time, 
but think through, you know, who are the production editors and the copy editors who are not what we do as acquisitions or developmental editors, right? They're the people who are going to be the grammar nerds. They're some of my favorite people that work here. The grammar nerds who are going to, you know, make sure every I is dotted, every T is crossed, every M dash is appropriate, right? Mm -hmm. We have those. We have the folks who are going to make decisions about font and type and sizing. And so having people who are mindful of accessibility issues, like I'm working on a book called Stepping Out right now, that's showcasing um, the fashion and style of Black elders, so people who are 50 plus. Mm. One of the small considerations is, is the font type big enough for the core audience that's being represented in the book? Right. Yeah. So having people in production, in design, cover art who are making the choices on what a cup, what images are going to be represented on a cover. Um, and that's just the book making part itself. Mm -hmm. Right. Not even to your point, something you mentioned, Elizabeth, about uh, the books being out there in the world, marketing, publicity. It is not an editor's job to sell mm -hmm. our books like what we do to sell our books or connect them with the audience. That's really extra. That's not our professional role. Right. Mm -hmm. Our professional role is to bring the content into our publishing house and to develop it and create the most the strongest representation of what an author wants to get out into the world. But it really is on our sales colleagues, our marketing colleagues, our publicity colleagues to connect that with the audience, right? Mm -hmm. So for all of those steps, if we've only had a conversation about how important diversity is from an acquisitions editorial space, we are selling ourselves short because certainly mm -hmm. there are editors who do not come from certain communities who are phenomenal ambassadors for developing a story that can reach those communities. I think about Kate Medina publishing Isabel Wilkerson's The Warmth of Other Sons and Cast, right? Mm -hmm. Kate also publishes John Meacham and Emma Klein, but she could do Isabel Wilkerson's book such great justice. But mm -hmm. is there going to be a production editor that knows to capitalize Black at a time where it might not have been capitalized? Or is there someone who is running the cover art department who knows how to select an image that really speaks to that community's need, right? Is there an interior designer, so the person who makes the choices on font and spacing in that, who can say, oh, you know, the history of this font is actually rooted in something so colonial and evil or has the name of, you know, a certain kind of oppressor. So we wouldn't use that for this book, mm -hmm. right? If diversity isn't as important in those other departments, then we're still not developing a product that has the same kind of authenticity and the same kind of heart and soul that the mainstream voices we've been publishing for centuries would have. Mm -hmm. um, so it's always important to me to make sure that those folks are production editors. If, you know, managing editorial um, designers, interiors, cover art, that those folks, even sub rights, the people who are responsible wow. for helping to publish our books overseas, right? You know, I come from the world of hip hop. It was, <laughs> it was a fight for me to convince some of my sub rights colleagues that Japan was worth pitching hip hop content to, right? If someone like me had been in sub rights, they would have known that and been on top of it. They would have known it and been in France. They would have known it and been in Amsterdam, right? So that as an editor, I don't have to do 
10 other jobs just to get my book the same attention that other editors from the more mainstream culture can do independently. Mm -hmm. um, wow. Just daunting, just hearing about it. I mean, it's at so many levels just to think about what you have yeah. to do. Yeah. And I, I just wanted to add to that. I think, I think, Portia's point is so important because the tendency is to focus on the editors because the editors are the most, in a, in a very opaque system, the editors are the most visible, right? And so the decision to hire a number of, of editors of color, particularly black editors in the past couple of years um, is a really important decision. But I think that there is a huge follow-up question, which I think Portia's pointing to, which is, do we actually have the infrastructure to support mm -hmm. the folks that, that those folks are bringing into the world? So for example, I have a book that I'm working on that I'm so excited about and that Portia has probably heard me rant and rave about. Um, it's by this guy called Jason Hernandez. It's a story of somebody who was, um, he's the, the son of the migration after the great migration in Texas, mm -hmm. after so many African-Americans had left uh, many states, including Texas the state government started luring Mexicans to come and take those jobs on farms, picking cotton, picking different vegetables and fruits about 100 years ago. And it's his family story and his own story of incarceration. And then eventually he was granted clemency by President Barack Obama. Wow. It's a fascinating story. I think it's a really important story. It deals with the criminal justice system. It deals with the war on drugs. But it also deals with this community that I think is huge, but also so invisible and so misunderstood. But how do you market that? And how do you reach the community itself, right? Like all, we, we've never done it before. When you have to do uh, articulate comp, comp titles, comparable titles, which is how in many cases, editors make a case for acquiring a book. There weren't really weren't comp titles for Jason's book, right? Mm. To me, that's a reason to acquire the book because the book needs to exist because there's nothing like it. But for many people in the industry, it's a reason not to, right? And so there's just a lot of a lot of a lot of I think important questions, um, ancillary questions. And I think I would just the final thing I'll say on this is that if you scrutinize the sales departments in many of the big publishing houses, you'll see that they haven't maybe evolved as much as the editorial departments have. And that I think is an enormous challenge for us because it means that the people who are actually going door to door representing as ambassadors of the, these books don't necessarily have that level of either proximity, commitment, or experience with some of the subject matter. And so I think what we always wonder as newer editors in this, in this business is, Mm -hmm. Are we being set up to succeed or are we being set up to fail? And is there an answer? <laughs> I think it's complex. I think I think you have to look at it from an ecosystem perspective. I think that there are amazing people in every department who are deeply committed to this work. Mm -hmm. But as Portia knows, my perspective on this stuff is if we as companies are really serious about transforming how we approach communities that we've historically really kind of ignored or disinvested in, we have to get specific about measuring what that looks like and holding ourselves accountable for how we do it, right? So we can all have lip surface about this stuff, but when push comes to shove and you're out in the field, 
and you have 15 or I don't know how many books that you're responsible for pitching, which ones are at the front of your mind? And like, that's a very, that's a very personal question. But I think that asking for accountability around those questions would really help us be much more thorough and consistent on these things. Right. Absolutely. Uh, you know, and I think just to kind of think about these big sales departments and so on, uh, we always hear about the big five or the big four that control the market uh, and it really is a market and they have a disproportionate influence uh, on the book market. Um, but, you know, we at the Radical Books Collective work with so many independent and smaller publishers, uh, often trying to make sure to pick indie books out of uh, for our book clubs, for our events and so on. Um, and there's just an incredible array of imprints led by non-white editors and publishers. Uh, but at the same time, it's super hard to get one's hands on these books. You know, they aren't necessarily in bookstores. Why is the big publisher structure so hard to decenter or disrupt? How can, you know, the, these all seem to exist and they exist, these smaller presses seem to exist, I don't know, out of sheer will, creativity, I don't know. But somehow it doesn't seem to shift the scene quite as much one would, you know, as much as one would like. So I don't know, some thoughts. May I? Um, yes, of course. I'm very grateful to those indie publishers for something that Elizabeth nodded to, which is the comp title, right? Mm -hmm. That in order for an editor to convince our bosses that a book is worth taking on, we have to demonstrate what similar book out there has performed well. And for the longest time, we only had what the big five were doing um, as our comp title evidence. But now we can point to Akashic Books used to be my favorite um, because their, their mandate uh, was reverse gentrification of the book publishing process. And so that meant that they consistently took chances on content I wished we could acquire um, or publishers like the New Press with, you know, the publication of the new Jim Crow by Michelle Alexander. Like they were able to demonstrate that those books could be successful. I will mm -hmm. say, I don't, I, I, I have to say this, this is where my like publishing insider thing might not <laughs> be a credit. Um, but I put a lot of this on bookstores themselves, right? Yeah. And why? Because bookstores are a publishing. So for our big five, our big four, they are our consumer, right? Mm -hmm. We've only been able to talk about consumers as actual readers in recent, recent history, right? That's past 10 years. And that's largely thanks to Twitter um, being a space where we could see readers interacting with authors and interacting with ideas in a quantifiable way that we could immediately say, oh, there's 25,000 people who retweeted something that Brian Stevenson said. Maybe we should actually look at Brian Stevenson for a book, even though the new Jim Crow, which would have been the closest comp, was only published by this small publisher, right? right. So it's been up to, and I'm sorry, because this might go all over, but I promise it's the same point. Um, that it is up to bookstores to demonstrate that their consumers want the content that we would bring to them. And mm -hmm. we can have as many conversations in-house about how to diversify our editorial staff or be progressive down to how to diversify our copy editor pool or our publicity and marketing resources, even down to our sales reps. But our sales reps can only present the titles, right? They cannot force Barnes & Noble to take sure. that many copies, right? They cannot necessarily weigh, you know, how 
anyway, they can't force the bookstore buyers to invest in our books. They can make a case. We can, as sure as big conglomerates, make it easy for them. And I know we do that. And especially with spaces like PRH Publisher Services, which mm-hmm. tries to confer the benefit we have as a major to some of the smaller publishers with regards to speed of distribution and reorder, things we can do because size facilitates it, right? Mm-hmm. We can do that, but that's still not going to make that bookstore buyer or manager support more diverse content. They have to be a part of this. They're making assessments based on where is the store located? How do they treat the consumers that come into their store, right? A kind of backward pendulum swing around diversity in this business that took place around the Great Recession. Part of that backward swing was because the bookstores that were serving the most diverse communities were the first ones to close. Right. Mm. So there were no more, you know, small bookstores in malls anymore. That one that was on the corner in this neighborhood that's really trafficked by, you know, black women who were commuters in and out of work. Those are the ones that closed. So where who else is going to serve that market? Right. How easy how easily accessible is a bookstore to communities who are feeling underserved by the content? Right. Mm -hmm. And that's not on again, that's not that's not our decision to make as editors. I have to hope that for initiatives like this, for the more vocal we are, that booksellers can join us in this mission because that's their choice to make. Sure. Sure. They have to be mission driven as well. (laughs) Yeah. And one of the really I think a really important point is that booksellers are in terms of demographics are quite similar to the way that the industry has been in the sense that they're overwhelmingly white. Um, and so that's a really, you know, interesting challenge. I would also say, I mean, I, you know, I come into this from having worked closer to community organizing um, in philanthropy and, and looking and trying to understand social movements and stuff. And I guess one of the things that I've been really curious about with publishing, and I'm still absolutely in learning mode around this, but curious about particularly how independent um, publishers might think about this. It's one thing is putting out the book. And the other thing is building community with the audience, right? And I think, you know, having come up as a, as a music critic, I always depended on the Village Voice or you know, the Washington Post or Vibe Magazine to build the audience. And that was my vector. That was my mechanism to reach people. I never felt a responsibility to build that relationship myself, right? Yeah. But I would say, and this is a really challenging thing, and I understand that people don't want to do this, but the truth is, if you have the capacity, the interest, the commitment to build relationships with your audience, that puts you in so much of a stronger position because then to Portia's point, you actually have people deliberately going to the bookstore and asking for your book, right? Versus continually depending on the other side of that equation. So it's something to think about. I mean, I I, I think there's a craven aspect to that, which I really don't like, right? And kind of the influencer economy and all that stuff. Yeah. But I also think that people, the writers who are actually interested in being in communication and in conversation with their readership 
Mm -hmm. Particularly, I think about people who are already organizers or don't necessarily explicitly think of themselves as organizers, but have those kinds of relationships. I think they are in a position to test what it looks like to be in community and what that means from a kind of marketing and sales perspective um, and how and if and how that might disrupt some of the dynamics, whether you're with an independent publisher or, you know, a big five publisher. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think so much of what both of you said um, makes me think of, you know, a question that I had been wanting to ask, which is like the moment that we're in, uh, which is like a, it can be an explosive moment, but it's also could be seen as an optimistic uh, moment because, you know, there's so much going on online. I know we hate Amazon, but we also love Amazon because it allows us to buy and access so many different things. And it also allows actually new works in translation and smaller presses to, to, to you know, have their little mini stores inside of Amazon and things like that. Um, there were also the publishing paid me and the diverse books hashtags that went viral that uh, produced a sort of ripple effect in the industry, uh, having them, making them have a kind of reckoning. And then, of course, the thing that I remain ambivalent about is like book talk or uh, Instagram, bookstagram or Instagram book influencers. But they're really creating this extraordinary book culture. And it's very hard to predict sort of which book they will suddenly kind of lift up and, you know, make it go big or whatever. So it's an interesting moment. There's also more awards and festivals and, you know, just more of everything. Um, do you feel there's a kind of palpable shift in the air? Something's changed? Do we feel optimistic? <laughs> I would say, again, uh, building on something I said before, yes, I am optimistic and why? Because all of those things are giving readers more influence in what's being published than they have ever had before. Right? That might sound trite, but it is very true. The only readers who really had influence on what book publishers were publishing in years past were the readers who work in book publishing and their families and friend groups. Right. So and that's even down to, you know, the success of the book. I talk a lot about um, Fifty Shades of Grey. Right. <laughs> yeah. Fan fiction. Right. Based on it. I'm sorry because I'm not into vampires, but in my opinion, not the greatest written fan fiction based on other not the greatest written vampire books. And I yeah. say that having worked with Anne Rice, whom we miss dearly, and who was a wonderful and fantastic writer who did a lot of things to break open a lot of doors for a lot of different styles of writing. But in any case, Fifty Shades of Grey was able to be published by the most literary publisher in our building, being Alfred A. Knopf, who publishes Toni Morrison and James Baldwin. And the only reason that that book was able to get that degree of platform was because she was was so popular with suburban white housewives in very wealthy neighborhoods who were exactly the crowd conversations that book publishing executives and their families were a part of. So they heard about the groundswell and the explosion of popularity there and made a decision to publish it, right? And try to make that big bigger. Now, it is not only those housewives who are able to evidence that their stories are important. Right. Mm -hmm. We can actually look at, you know, bookstagram accounts like Always Black and see, oh, there are so many more people who are engaging with these voices. We can think of, and I know this was another thing we talked about before, you know, 
the influence that some of the Black bloggers have been able to have, right? Why? Because folks like Damon Young or like Michael Arsenal or T.S.A. Lehman or even Hanif Abdurraqib, like these are voices who were showing people come to them for their ideas. Ta-Nehisi Coates, like Between the World and Me was an infinitely bigger book than his debut, The Beautiful Struggle. And why? Because Ta-Nehisi was on Twitter at a very pivotal moment just before his book came out and was showing how many millions of people wanted to come to him for information. So that's power in the hands of people who want to access the ideas in books, right? And for them to be able to influence what our bosses are doing, sometimes even more than what some of us who work there can influence our bosses to do is, yes, groundbreaking, transformative, revolutionary, and yes, we'll still require, and I'm grateful to be here, conduits to help make sure that those folks who are still making those decisions, what I call the purse string holders, are hearing that feedback, mm -hmm. but they have more power just by virtue of media than they ever have before. Right. Yeah, I think that's a huge, I think that's such an exciting and important point. And I think also for me, um, I'm always, I'm, you know, I'm I, like the book talk, those, the, to me, a lot of those conversations are pretty insular, right? They're amongst people who are already huge readers, talking to other people who are already huge readers. And I think the the not not that I am, you know, I'm I'm interested in those readers too, but they're a comparatively small percentage of, you know, the people in the world who might read a book, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the one of the categories that I'm always interested in is like more has more in common with me, which is the people who read a couple books a year, or maybe 10, you know, that's kind of more where I've been at. I haven't identified as a heavy reader. I haven't been in the thick of the kind of, oh, what book is coming out this week? What book is coming out? No, I did that for music, but I did, I've never done that for books even as, and even as I'm in the industry, it's not my, my kind of natural cadence. But I think to me, one of the big questions is how do you simultaneously recognize exactly what Portia described, which is there is this new, all of these new places and mechanisms to capture information about what people feel about books. But how do you also right-size that and recognize that that's actually not everybody who might read? And yeah. in fact, that it misses out on a really significant portion of people, like let's say people who are incarcerated, who are huge readers, right? But who aren't on social media, for example, or people who are not big readers, but the one book they read that year or the two books that they read that year change their lives. They talk about it to everybody at their church, but they're not on social media, you know? So I think for me, one of the really big questions is how do we, on the one hand, benefit from all of those insights? And on the other hand, push ourselves to be accessible to the people who aren't uh, sharing about books in that easily quantifiable way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, 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 absolutely. I mean, I'm a, I'm a professor of literature. So of course this makes me think about genre, you know, and thinking about fan fiction for Twilight becoming 50 shades of everything and, you know, the movies and all the madness, how it shifts kind of, um, you know, what we tend to valorize 
you know, as a good book, bad book, and so on. And I think publishing industries are, of course, influenced uh, by that. And I think we end up in moments of time where we valorize certain types of certain forms of writing. And I think then the market will overdetermine the success of this genre, for example. I mean, it's always going to remain a mystery how everyone got through reading several pages of Fifty Shades of Grey to me because it's such a strange book. Um, so I think one of the things that I had been thinking of just because I run book clubs is celebrity book clubs, which which tend to amplify upmarket uh, fictions. They're always novels and they, you know, they are very easy book club reads, which are women centric generally. And they often are like film or, you know, TV series material. Um, so I just, you know, I just wondered if either of you can speak of the impact of these calculations on the authors and books that may not, not fit the trend or not fit the genre that's uh, cool and, you know, selling at the moment. How does one, what does one do with that? Go, go, Osha, go ahead. Um, so I think it's multiple. Um, celebrity book clubs are tremendously important and the diversity of celebrities who have book clubs has been a big, again, difference maker in a space because we're building, we're using that platform to help amplify authors who may not have platforms that could sell that many copies. Right. And so the diversity in those influencers, obviously Oprah and how pivotal she was to the success of a book like Ayanna Mathis or anyone that she selects, like that's we're we're grateful for that. And more celebrities who can actually look at books. I think Oprah selected cast by Isabel Wilkerson too as a book club read. So she wasn't just beholden yeah. to fiction. I'm thinking um, about Reese with a spoon. Yeah, right. Primarily. Mm-hmm. I mean, this <laughs> is a whole phenomena now. Sarah Jessica Parker is the other one. And these are kind of white women for white women, but they are insisting on diverse books, you know, also. Because it's important to probably their platforms too, as you know, they're coming under fire for how representative they are. It's not, I don't think just beholden to books, but again, Mm -hmm. grateful for as many voices that can champion a book as possible, right? As many conduits as we have to be able to break through all of the no's that we get, right? No, this audience doesn't exist. No, this author doesn't have a platform enough. No, this story falls between genres. No, nobody else in-house likes it. But you know what? Someone else likes Reese Witherspoon and Reese Witherspoon has a connection to X, Y, and Z that the author represents. So maybe that book has more of a chance. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I would hope, I, I'm curious, actually, how many other celebrities would take having a book club as an important responsibility for their platform to something you said, Elizabeth, like for those casual readers who love music and would love, you know, like now thinking, I was listening to Wu-Tang this morning and I'm thinking about what would like the RZA's book club be, (laughs) right? And how many people would actually be inspired to read along with him? I think we're closer to that than we ever have been before. Um, and as many advocates as we have for diverse stories, the better, because there are enough people in-house to help amplify that in those rooms where decisions are being made. But we need to be backed up by right. real data. And 
man, but now I'm hearing you, Elizabeth, on what do we do for those communities who aren't going to be represented in the data and whose yeah. stories are probably most interesting and for whom representation matters most in terms of just how it can change their community and the options people feel they have available to them. Um, yeah. I'll spend some time thinking about. Yeah. I think one thing that might be of interest to your listeners is just that the vast majority of our books don't work. You know, this is a really interesting challenge that we face, isn't it? I mean, it's not, I don't even know if it would be considered a challenge because it's it's just how business is done generally. There's a small, like 20% of books subsidize 80% of books, right? So that's a really, I always find that to be on the one hand, really liberating, because it's like, oh, so why don't we take risks? Why don't we try and publish things that are different and see what sticks, right? Um, and at the same time, I don't know that it's understood that way. And I think a lot of times it it creates a dynamic, a worry, right? And a, and, a, and so I think for me, one of the big questions is, yes, I agree with Portia, all of these book clubs are important and help and can be helpful, right? And also what kind of infrastructure are we willing and able to create? You know, if we're continually depending on, I think about this, this is a story from a few years ago. Um, Jason Epstein, was it Jason Epstein, I think? Who was the, he was an editorial director at, at PRH, I think, years and years ago, um, really, really important editor. And there was a period where all of the New York uh, newspapers had, they were on strike. And so there were no book reviews coming out. And he was like, this is this is a real problem for us as a publisher, right? Because none of our books are getting written about. And so that was the moment in which he and some other folks created the New York Review of Books. And I just find that like they, they created the New York Review of Books because they understood that the conversation about their product, whether it was positive or negative, was actually essential to the success of their product. And I personally, as every, as you all probably know, um, I co-founded Critical Minded, which is a uh, an initiative to support cultural critics of color. And it basically makes the case that if we want to have a cultural conversation that is as rich and vibrant and provocative as the work itself, we actually have to invest in diversifying the ranks of criticism. And I think, you know, that's, you know, this is obviously, I, I have a vested interest in this, but I do feel like, I think book clubs, I think there are all of these different mechanisms through which people can hear about books, get excited about books, get confused about books, feel conflicted about books. And I think criticism, to my mind, is a really interesting part of that. I love this history um, of the creation of the New York Review of Books. I'm not saying we should create something similar now, but I just mentioned it to, to think about, you know, what the big publishers can do and how we might do it. And I think Always Black is actually an interesting example of, of creating these new mechanisms to reach audiences and to cultivate enthusiasm that doesn't depend on an external celebrity. Right, right, right. No, absolutely. Um, and I think we've covered a lot of ground here. I just um, want to end with the final kind of question, because when I read the PEN America report, I was so struck, Elizabeth, by this comment you made 
um, you know, in the report about how the story of the U.S. has been told so far through books. Uh, the one, the story that's been told through books is such a really narrow one. In fact, you say, and let me quote you, you say, when we primarily publish books by white authors, the number of stories that we're avoiding or suppressing is significant. And, uh, you know, this, this cannot be more true. And I just wanted you both to have a kind of last word on, you know, what you think needs to immediately change? What does this beautiful, big world of all these kinds of stories look like? Just a final thought. Just a final thought. Um, quick changing world type of thing. You know? Yeah, well, I'll, I'll just say um, thank you for sharing that quote. I think mm -hmm. I, I always, if you look up the number of Abraham Lincoln biographies there are, if you look up the number of, you know, there's, there's, um, it, it the the disproportionality. Obviously, Abraham Lincoln is important and should be written about, but it just feels like there are so many stories that have have never been told, right? Um, and I guess for me, the animating spirit is curiosity. You know, like what would we, what would happen? If, for example, the, the book I mentioned earlier, the Jason Hernandez story, if people reading it had context for that book, right? If people knew that there was a migration after the Great Migration, people knowing about the Great Migration is not a given, right? To the extent that they know about it, they probably don't know about this next migration, which was enormous, significant, and like economically um, essential to, to this country and yet, and culturally also incredibly significant and yet unknown, right? And one of the things that I'll just say for me editorially as I work on that book, it's like, do people know about this? Had they read about that? Was there a book about this? Is mm -hmm. this familiar? And you realize as you're going through, you're like, no, 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 nobody knows. Like most people don't know about anything that he's referencing, right? So to edit that book and to write that book effectively, you're not just writing his story. You're writing all of these histories around it and you're providing this context. I get goosebumps when I think about it. And also I ask myself, that's a weight that's unfair to him in that book, right? Mm -hmm to carry all of that. And so I think with everyone, I feel like what we're doing is we're just, you know, putting our little grain of sand and saying, this is an invitation into a world that you haven't been to, but I think you might be interested in. Come with me, you know? Yeah, that's beautiful. You're building a world. Portia, did you wanna add something? I will add a note of hope. Um, <laughs> There is um, the great Paul Coates, um, known to many as father of ta but known to many more as the founder of Black Classics Press, um, yeah. had, whose mission was to keep in print those books that publishers no longer felt were successful enough. So those that 80% of books that aren't successful that Elizabeth mentioned, um, when diversity was in vogue at whatever, and we talked about it being like 20 year increments when, you know, right. diversity or blackness or one particular cultural POV was in vogue and publishers were late to a lot of trends because of how long it takes to produce a book, right? Like to that note of how many people touch a book in order to take it from text 
to a physical thing, it takes like two years for that whole process to happen. So we are constantly behind our colleagues in music or film or television in storytelling. So by the time, you know, we catch on to, you know, street lit being trendy, it's no longer as trendy. And so not to say that that's what Black Classics Express publishes. No, they publish things that are a lot more robust. But in any case, he and I were having the conversation that this moment of interest in diversity and book publishing was just as sick as some of the others, right? Mm -hmm. And I never to push back on my elders, especially not such wise ones, did have a different POV to <laughs> share with Mr. Coates, which was that for the first time, the conversation about diversity in this business is not just talking about our content, it is talking about our staff, right? We're mm -hmm. not just talking about, you know, getting more folks like Ta-Nehisi on our list. We're talking about getting more folks like Chris Jackson to work here. And by doing that, we've opened the conversation to what support does Chris need in Elizabeth, but also in production? What support do Elizabeth and Chris need in publicity for their books? And now that's evolved even farther to how inclusive is our environment for all of those people? Do they Are they as primed to succeed here as mm. those editors whose grandparents also worked here, right? And then from that, how equitable are the processes by where which by which we're supposed to be able to make those folks feel included, right? Are our forms equally accessible or equitably accessible, right? Are conversations about when we acquire as fair to editors who have to jump through more hoops just for people to understand the world in which their authors are writing, right? These are very real conversations that are getting very real resources and very real public pressure being put on our publishing executives to sustain. And that I haven't seen. In fact, I know that wasn't the case. You had Toni Morrison being an editor at Random House and then leaving, right? Not to be replaced by another Black editor for a number of years, right? We can actually talk about that in-house now vocally in the hallways, be seen talking about, be invi invite people to entire town halls in our company to talk about this now. We never, that never happened before. And so the combination of that plus audience visibility and audience empowerment to drive some of our decisions, I can't be discouraged in this moment, despite some of the sideways things, some colleagues still say, despite some of the fights, I can't believe I still have to have on the day to day, sure. um, despite how horrible some of the news can be, I cannot be anything but encouraged. I mean, if you worked with Elizabeth, you would have to be encouraged. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's great. Elizabeth, you were you were uh, trying to say something. Yeah, no, I was just gonna say. I think one thing that um, I'm so glad, Portia, that you were that we're able to have this conversation um, because Portia has a, a, like a, a large larger con context for this, and it was so interesting being interviewed for the Pen America piece, having only been in publishing for a year or two at the time. I did that interview significant a while ago, right? Significantly before it came out. And I felt a little bit uncomfortable because I was like, I know there are people who have been working against 
significant odds, people like Portia, many colleagues. I had an opportunity through another colleague of ours who's no longer at the company who connected me with a number of Latinx staffers. At the time, there were no other editors, at, you know, at the time, but there were people working, you know, in the warehouse or working in other spaces and hearing their stories of what they'd been through of macroaggressions, microaggressions, you know, just ridiculous behavior that they had encountered. And I think one of the, I think when you have Portia's perspective and you have that evolution, mm -hmm. you're really able to, people like me, I, I feel really strongly that our responsibility, those of us who are more recent arrivals, is to listen to the people who have been with the company for a while and hear from them and think about ways that we can support one another and, and learn from each other. Um, I have you know, in, insights that come from the other businesses that I've been in, and I hope that I've been able to contribute those, but I also know that there's so much I have to learn. And I think that Portia, when Portia is hopeful, that makes me hopeful because she knows, right? And then I, I will just also add that for listeners, hold us accountable, you know? Hold, hold us accountable. I, I will say, I'm not going to do what you want me to do, of course, right? So don't expect me to do exactly the, you know, publish exactly the books that you think I should publish. But I think that editors and more broadly, the companies as a whole really do have a responsibility to think about what is the big American story that we're telling and how lopsided is it? And then at the end of the day, my piece of that puzzle is a small piece. I'm not going to publish you know, I'm not going to publish every Latin book that needs to be published, but I do believe that I have a responsibility to my community and to a readership that I am looking to serve and be in conversation with. And I think that our companies have that responsibility as well. And I think that when people started scrutinizing the companies, some really wonderful opportunities opened up. Um, and that's something to, to pay attention to. You know, I really believe that organizing and both speaking up through the social media mechanisms is important, but also like talking about salaries, you know, talking about who it's possible to work in these spaces, um, talking about what it takes to be able to succeed. And then also being real about the market implications of what we're doing, because I think I do experience a lot of people being like, you should publish this. And I'm like, do you know what it would take for that book to actually sell copies? Like really? Because if I don't sell copies of the books that I'm trying to put out into the world, I will not be in this job for very long. Like, right. let's be real about it. So I think, you know, finding that balance, but I think to the degree that we can decrease the opaqueness and make it a more transparent process, both in terms of acquisitions, which we didn't talk that much about, but which is obviously super important, ensuring putting pressure on agents, looking for agencies to have real, I mean, I've had conversations with agencies super fancy agencies, they didn't have a single Latinx person on staff and they hadn't acquired a single, they didn't have a single Latinx author. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? That's those dynamics. I think people, there's so many more opportunities for transparency around all of that. And I think that as we're seeing it, we're really seeing change. And that makes me so hopeful. Thank you. Wow. Wonderful. Sorry, Portia. I just, there's something, there's a term that, Elizabeth said earlier that I had to take time to write down and will be reusing and is so apt, kinetic diversity. 
Mm -hmm. For a minute, we could only be at like observational diversity. Think about it as something out there that we were aiming for. And again, I've worked for the same place for all this time. So if some of my colleagues in the indie spaces or other spaces have a different POV, apologies. But we were not kinetic about it. It was not active. It was not dynamic. It wasn't participatory or generative or creative. And I do think we are there now. There is so much more movement around it, um, Mm -hmm. not just as an idea, but as a force. And I'm glad that if I'm hopeful, you're hopeful, because if you're hopeful, I'm hopeful. This is how it works. (laughs) That's great. Thank you so much. This was such an inspiring and incredible wide-ranging conversation and also very inspiring to see the respect and love for each other and you know the fact that you're building this world and helping each other and I just want to say a huge 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 thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much for the invitation to you both. I could not be more grateful. 